Before thee let my cry come near, O Lord, true to thy word, teach me before thee. We are thankful that you are able to join us today as Pastor Mark Robinette preaches another sermon at Foundation Church here in Mount Sterling, Ohio. If this message is an encouragement to you, and we pray that it will be, please consider taking the time to go to www.foundationfellowshipchurch.org and let us know. Thank you, and may the Lord richly bless you through His Word. Let my lips thy praise confess, yea, of thy word my tongue would sing, Greetings this Lord's Day, this very, very snowy Lord's Day, in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Greetings. Greetings. Today, as we gather together, our theme today uh, will be rest in the time of trouble. Everybody say rest in the time of trouble. Trouble comes, and when it does, when uh, the stresses of life, when the difficulties come, when uncertainty comes, there is one place we can find rest, and one place alone. There's one place that doesn't change, that you can go to and return again and again and find rest, and that's in God. Amen? Amen. Psalm 127 is a song of degrees for Solomon. Most of you are familiar with it. There was actually a time in my life of, I've only experienced insomnia one time. Um, But I was under a great deal of stress. I was a young kid. I was a teenager. uh, And I was really, really stressed. I don't want to go into the whole thing, but I was really, really worried about a bunch of stuff. And I couldn't sleep. I didn't sleep, probably didn't sleep for days. Now, I've had the thing where you wake up, you know. But this was literally like all day and all night, just totally awake for days. And... um, it was weird because I was in school. I was at college at the time, and so I would go in, and when it was time for class, you know, I'm like ready to pass out, but I'm like, I want to pass out. I want to get in trouble falling asleep in class because I just want to fall asleep. Uh, but I couldn't even fall asleep in class. It was rough. And um, the Lord gave me this scripture, and when I read it and believed it, my insomnia ended. So, you know, I don't know that that will work for everybody, but it worked for me. All I did is read it, and I said, well, you know, God's Word says it's true, so I'm just going to believe it. And then I went to sleep. (laughs) I slept a long time. But Psalm 127, most of you know this psalm. It says, except the Lord build a house, they labor in vain that build it. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh, but in vain. They're talking about things here that are things you worry about. You know, you've got to get this thing done. What? Building a city, right? And unless the Lord built it, you're building it in vain. Oh, I've got to get this project accomplished. I've got to get this thing done. And then there's the, you know, I'm going to keep my children and my wife safe, and I want to make sure we're prepared, And right? There's that, there's that feeling that you have, and that's something that also gives you a great deal of stress. But he said, except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh but in vain. Verse 2, it says, It is vain for you to rise up early to set up late to eat the bread of sorrows. He's talking about it's vain for you to worry and fret and think and scheme and plan. How can it all happen? How is it all going to happen? Oh, no. It's vain for you to rise up early to set up late to eat the bread of sorrows. For he giveth his beloved sleep. Sleep is an amazing thing, really. I mean, what is it that... God has given us this for. We live and then we just like conk out, you know, for as long as we can. It's a wonderful thing, really. It's a gift from God. Lo, children are heritage of the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is his reward. Talk about something that'll steal your sleep. (laughs) 
As arrows are in the hand of a mighty man, so are children in the youth. Happy is the man that hath his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but they shall speak with the enemies in the gate. This psalm is what they call a chiasm, and so it centers in the middle here with giving sleep. There's something that causes you fretfulness. You know, Mama Bear over here is wondering if Nathaniel, he's way over in Colorado, you know, and, and oh, Benjamin, now he's off at, you know, real estate school, and this is going on, and oh no, you know, but children are a heritage of the Lord. The fruit of the womb, they're God's reward. They're not to, there to stress us out. They belong to him. Amen? And you know what? If we do our work, God will do his work. Amen? Amen. Rest in the time of trouble. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the rest that you give us, the peace that you give us. Oftentimes we think everything depends on us and we need to be reminded again and again that we are frail, we are weak, we are changeable in so many ways. We are always in a state of flux. If we were to build our lives on our emotions and on what we see with our eyes, we would be like the man that built his house on the sand. But Lord, we want to build our lives on the rock today. That's why we've gathered together in your presence. Lord, you are our rock. Lord, you are our fortress, our very present help in the time of trouble. And Lord, we run to you. We run to the mountain, the rock of God for our safety. We have come here today, Lord, and we are longing to hear your voice. We are hungry to be fed from heaven. Lord, change us. Help us to be like you. In Christ's name we pray. And all the church said amen. continuing our odyssey through the book of psalms we've done psalm number one and psalm two and today we're going to be working on psalm number three my text for you is psalm chapter three verses two through five hear the word of the lord many there be which say of my soul there is no help for him in god but thou, O Lord, art a shield for me, my glory and the lifter up of mine head. I cried unto the Lord with my voice, and he heard me out of his holy hill. I laid me down and slept, and I awakened, for the Lord sustained me. Let us pray. Lord, we look to you for our strength, for our provision, for our protection. And we look for you for our rest. Lord, we live in a world filled with the toil that came with the curse. The toil to earn a living by the sweat of our brow. To fight against the thorns and, and the, the weeds that, that grow up and the tares even that grow in the midst of the church. Lord, we pray, Lord, today, Lord, that as we would look to your word and we would hear the story, the very, very sad story of David and Absalom, that our hearts would be reminded, Lord, that in the most dire and difficult times, Lord, you are our rest and help in time of trouble. Amen. You may be seated. The background of Psalm 3 is filled with fear and uncertainty of doubt and insecurity and deep personal pain. The story in this psalm has a lot to offer so many of us who struggle with these same afflictions. And I call them afflictions because that's what they are. As much as any physical illness or uh, outside stress, most of us suffer with inner turmoil, right? Come on guys, we do. You may not realize it, but you do. They affect your lives every single day. I know because it affects my relationship with you. It affects your relationship with others. 
Those deep things that we struggle with deep down in our hearts are affect how we hear every word that comes out of other people's mouths. They, they speak, and it's not so much what they say, but why we think they say it, and, and how you are, and who you are, right? Just the way it is. As your pastor, I know this to be true of all of you. We're broken. This is the part of what sin has done in the world, and He's done it to us. It's what is killing us every single day. It's such a part of us that we have become accustomed to it and we think that really it's just part of our personality. This is, this is just me. This is just Paul Chapman. You know, This is just Andy Kuzel. This is just Luke Downey. But it's not. These things that are twisting us, that are bending us and disfiguring us as we grow toward the sunlight of God's grace. These things one day, Luke, will be gone. Amen? One day we won't be bent like that anymore and we won't be twisted in. When we hear good things, we won't hear bad things behind the good things we hear. We won't be looking for sarcasm or condescension or we won't be looking at someone spying our faults and our failures. One day we will cast them off and one day that which is bent will be straightened. Amen? I love all of you and I long to lead you out of these afflictions to help you live with one another in peace in spite of them, to help you live in peace with yourself. It's honestly my greatest challenge as a pastor of Foundation Church and as the father and husband in my own home. Studying God's Word is a joy. You know, I meet ministers and they talk about studying 40 hours a week. Wouldn't that be grand? I love it. I love getting into God's Word and digging into things and looking at original meanings and, and, and looking at architecture and history and anthropology and philosophy and getting into... I love that. I absolutely love it. I don't even mind trying to set a good example, you know? Part of me trying to set a good example is putting gravel in my muddy driveway this, this, uh, this week. Uh, filling in Lake Robinette with five tons of dirt so that we don't have a giant uh, lake in the front of our yard. Trying to not be a bad neighbor. Trying to be a good example. I mean, the pastor's house should not look like the worst house in the church. But all that's even kind of fun and challenging, you know. But dealing with the deep personal pains that misshape you, that misshape me, that make you hard to live with and make you difficult to be peaceful as a church member or a family member... Those things are excruciatingly difficult. You, you may not really understand what I'm saying, but, you know, like, it's hard enough to help your good sister in Christ, but knowing what she might think of it and how sin has shaped her and how she might take it and it might be difficult, now that's a whole other matter. You can, it's easy to just go, hey, don't do that. But, you know, if you do that, you might hurt their feelings and upset them and make you think that you don't love them and you might, right? Right? How many of you try to deal with your children and you, you're learning as you get older? Some of your kids are young, but some of you are learning as your kids get older. It's not so much what you try to do with them, it's how you do it. Right? Come on, Heath, you can, you know, we can, you can bang Patrick over the head, right? He's, he's tough, he can take it. But maybe if you bang Sage over the head, it's not going to be the same, right? Or if Shay Shay or, or Stacy. We're all different. What makes us different that I'm talking about today are the things that are broken in us. Each of our children and our friends and the people of this church have different insecurities and fears. Things we're worried about. You know, I meet with grown men who are worried about things that, why are they worrying, I wonder? But it doesn't matter why. They worry. That's just who they are. That's who they have become by what has happened to them by the deep scars of sin. My prayer today is that God would minister to those needs in you and me today through this story and psalm and straighten us up just a little bit and help us understand what's going on inside ourselves and others. As you can see from the heading at the top of the psalm of Psalm 3, sometimes left out in some of the Bibles, 
uh, that we read, and even in online forums, this psalm was written by our great patriarch David, who we know was the king of Israel. And we know that he was promised by God to have a throne that would endure forever. We know it was written to him. And we know it was written by it was written by him, and it was written by him in a time that is so horrible that I think it's hard for us to imagine. I was trying to imagine it myself, you know. Imagine being king of Israel. I mean, and having to run for your life from your own son. Imagine Benjamin is trying to kill me, and he's got men, he's got 50 men who run before his chariot. He's gone down to Gath, and he's gone over to this kingdom, and he's gathered these mercenary armies. He's got spies infiltrating the land, and they do a coup d'etat on me, and I'm out fleeing for my life in the desert from my own son. I can't even, I can't even comprehend the turmoil and the pain. The one man on earth in earth's history who God would compare to his own son who would be the perfect king of earth. And yet we see what great struggles he had, what pain he endured, and how these things shaped and misshaped him. But now in heaven, David is misshapen no more. Amen? Today we'll look at what was going on in his life when he wrote Psalm 3. So we'll start at the very beginning of Psalm 3. Psalm 3, starting in verse 1. A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Now, I know it's a snowy day, but I'm going to need a little bit more facial expression from some of you out there today. Can you imagine it? This is not a made-up story. This was really David. David, you know, the David that we think is so wonderful and so great, who, who vanquished the Goliath of Gath, who danced before the Lord when uh, the Ark of the Covenant was returning to Jerusalem. That David, the David that said, he's a man after my own heart. This guy's running for his life from his son. These words alone, without any explanation all, are difficult enough. To be uprooted from your home, in David's case, his palace. To find yourself hiding and fearing for your life every day. That kind of makes our worries here today seem small. David was a man who had a giant household. Who had lots of little ones and wives and servants. He had to protect all of them. And I mean, if you had to just jump in your van, Heath, and, and make it out is one thing. But imagine if you had a hundred people. And you had to care for them, and you were worried, and you loved them. They were the people that were with you. Imagine if you had, how would you even do it? David had to protect them from this internal mutiny within his family and in his nation. We can't really relate to this. It's not like we have 100 people or 200 people or however many people it was. But we can relate to circumstances that can turn your world upside down in a moment. And that's what happened. It happened in one day. David, everything was fine one day. And the next thing you know, there's trouble. We can relate to that. The sad story of what happened on this day spans five chapters of the Bible. And we're not talking about little short mini chapters. Five entire chapters. But I would say most people here could not tell this story at all. Wouldn't even know it. Five chapters of the Bible. There are stories in the Bible that are three verses long, and we all know those stories. But this is a story that spans five chapters of the book of 2 Samuel. And the details of it are details I guarantee you, if I started asking a quiz question right now, you would fail it. Since God's Word covers it extensively, it's a story we should know, but we don't, and we're going to learn about it today. As we look at the song and prayer David wrote in the midst of this time in his life, it's a good time to look at the story too. David had several wives. Now this was not good, but it was the way that things were. Back then, if you didn't want to go to war with the nation next to you, the thing they did was you would go and marry the king's daughter of the other nation, and the king's daughter would, you know, she would be your wife, and the king over there is not going to want to come and kill you, because why? His daughter's at your house. And you're not going to want to go kill him because that's where your father-in-law lives. It was a political way. That doesn't really take into account the concubine situation. Uh, the concubines were not important people. They were just girls that David liked. 
But as a king, you could have as many girls and wives as you liked. And uh, that's what he did. This is a very unfortunate thing. He was married to several women at once. As I began reading about this, I began thinking like, you know, this really treads on us a lot because he was God's man. And God didn't bring this trouble in his life because he did these things. He brought trouble in his life because of what he did with Bathsheba. Because the story that we're getting ready to tell is the next verse from the end of the story of Bathsheba. The very next verse. We'll get to it in a second. So King David was married to several women at once. The record's a bit confusing. If you go, you almost, you know, you have to look and look and look again. It looks like he had nine or ten wives. Some of them have nicknames and different names, and they're mentioned in different places. And some people say, oh, this is actually not a different woman. It's the same woman. Like, you know how we call Elizabeth Beetle, but she's really Elizabeth. There might be somewhere we just say Beetle. And then, you know, if you were around during that time, everybody knows who Beetle is, but not everybody remembers that Beetle is Elizabeth. So there's that kind of thing that goes on even in the Bible, um, which I won't get into that. Anyway, so not only did he have nine or ten wives, he had more than 20 children. And I don't know how many of you can name uh, five of the children of David, much less 20 of the children of David. I think if we ask anybody to name the child of David, I think one person, come on, name as loud as you can, one son of David. Solomon. See, everybody knows that one. But Solomon wasn't the firstborn. Solomon wasn't the secondborn. Solomon wasn't the thirdborn. Solomon wasn't, and on down the line. He doesn't get born for a long time. And how he became king is an amazing story. But he had 20 children, 19 sons and a daughter. Now, how many of you know the name of the one daughter? Now, he may have had others, but there's one daughter that's mentioned by name in the Bible. Anybody know her name? Her name was Tamar. David married seven of these women in the early part of his reign while he lived in Hebron. And later on when he moves to Jerusalem and gets in the trouble that he gets in there and marries Bathsheba. His firstborn son was from a a wife named Ahinoam. And his name was Amnon. Everybody say Amnon. Amnon. So it's not like the Amorites, but it's Amnon. That's what his firstborn son was named. Now, most people wouldn't know. Hey, the firstborn son of David was named Amnon. You wouldn't know that. Another of David's first round of wives included a woman named Makah. And Makah was the daughter of a king. If you know where the Sea of Galilee, remember we were doing the Sea of Galilee. If you, if you, if you left Jerusalem and you went north up to the Sea of Galilee, and then you crossed the Sea of Galilee, or you went around the Sea of Galilee to the east, you have the kingdom here, that, an area that was owned by the tribe of Ephraim, and the kingdom uh, is, is called Geshur. And the king there had a daughter, and he married her, and her name was Makah. And he married this woman as, in a political way, the Bible doesn't tell us the whole story, but in, in, in Geshur, he, married, he, he gets this woman. Now, I named the, these, these wives and these children because it is around them that our story surrounds. With this woman named Makah, David had two sons, and you may remember this name of a son. His name was Absalom. Everybody say Absalom. Absalom. And Absalom's daughter, or not his daughter, well, his daughter later. We'll get into that because he names his daughter the same as his sister. His sister, so there's Absalom and his sister Tamar. So Absalom and Tamar are from this woman that he marries from the kingdom of Geshur. And uh, these are beautiful people. So they were in a land, the the ethnic group, they were Armenian, uh, and they were very exotic looking and very beautiful people. In fact, the Bible says that Absalom was the most beautiful man in the kingdom. I mean, the Bible doesn't normally refer to a man as being beautiful, but Absalom was. It It says that Absalom did not have a blemish from his toe to the top of his head. He was beautiful. Can you imagine a beautiful man? You know, just like a hunk, a hunk of man, right? And so this man was this extraordinarily beautiful man, and he had hair, incredible hair. His hair grew at a rate that was amazing. 
And there were men in Israel that had long hair. Uh, there were generally men who made a vow to God called a Nazarite vow. Many scholars believe that he was such a man, that he was in his early years a very good man. You can't help it if you have beautiful hair, right? I mean, it's, it's just some people have it and some people don't. And so, and so Absalom had this beautiful hair. In fact, they said his hair grew so fast that they had to cut his hair once a year. And when they cut it off, the hair weighed over six and a half pounds. Can you imagine the weight of a six and a half pound hair? Now, you have to understand they didn't take showers and baths like we do every day. And so the oil accumulated in the hair. And not only that, but they would, in order to smell good, they would pour oil on themselves. So the oil would get in the hair. And so the hair would get heavy. And if you had hair, and some of you women know this more, but if you had hair that was gigantic and filled with oils and all kinds of stuff, and it weighed six or seven pounds, what would you be like? And this was Absalom, but his hair was beautiful, and people would see him, and they're like, wow. So not only was he beautiful, but he had a beautiful sister. So imagine this. You have a prince and a princess, and they're beautiful people, and people like them, and they look at them, and they're like, wow, look at the prince and princess. This is the son of David. It's a, the beautiful Absalom and his beautiful sister. Imagine you're watching them come through this town and, and they're there with their servants and they're there with their beautiful wealth and their robes and, and all their splendor. And you're like looking at them and you're like, wow, these are, these are beautiful people. You'll find that beauty ends up working out against people in the Bible. It actually works out against people in real life quite a lot. People flock to beautiful people. They listen to them as if somehow, you know, they had anything to do with it. You're just, you know, people listen to actors and actresses and stars and whether, oh, look at them. They're so beautiful. Well, what did they do? They were just born. They just, you know, they just got it. So people like to look at his magnificent self. And um, what happens next in the chapter in, in 2 Samuel, it happens, like I said, a few verses, or the very verse, right after David, uh, the child of David dies, and he comforts his wife, and she get conceives, and you know is bringing forth Solomon. In the very, very next verse, it says this. Well, I don't have it written down yet. I'll read it for you out of here. It says, Second Samuel, starting out in verse 1 of chapter 13. And it came to pass after this that Absalom, the son of David, had a fair sister whose name was Tamar. And Amnon, the son of David, loved her. And Amnon was so vexed that he fell sick for his sister, Tamar. For she was a virgin, and Amnon thought it hard for him to do anything to her. You know, What David did with Bathsheba, there was a curse put upon him that said that whatever he did in private was going to happen to him how? In public. He also told him that what he did in the killing of Uriah, what was going to happen to him is that the sword was going to be in his home and it would not depart. So as I begin to think about this, you know, David knew that what was about to happen, he was the cause. Everybody say, David was the cause. Now, you know, trouble in your life that comes is one thing. But when trouble comes because of you, there's a whole other thing, right? You know, if Heath goes off the road and he has to get pulled out of a ditch, it's one thing. But let's say... Heath knows there's something wrong with his car and he knows he needs to fix the tie rod and it's really going out and for weeks his wife's been saying you should do this and 
whatever. And they go down the road and the tie rod breaks and some people in his family gets hurt. That's a different kind of trouble, right? When you sin in your life and it affects your children, when you sin and it affects your church, when you sin and it affects your husband or your wife, and trouble comes in their life. Trouble is one thing, but when trouble comes because of you, it's another, right? And what was about to happen, he knew, was him. The beauty of Tamar, Absalom's sister, so overwhelmed her half-brother that he was literally sick with desire for her. This is not love, by the way. This is a whole other kind of thing. He wanted her. He desired her. He dwelt on her. He lusted after her. Visibly sick enough to make people ask him, so what's wrong with you? What are you sick? Why are you sick? I mean, this guy's got it bad. So sick that people are asking him, what's wrong with you? So a man, it says, that was his friend, and of course the Bible says it was his friend, but I would say that man was really not much of a friend. He says, well, I know what you can do. You can have this woman. I'm going to help you plan out how you can have. You have this great desire. I'll fix it for you, and I'll help you figure out how to get what you want. Was this guy being a friend to David? No, he was not. To Absalom. Absalom's brother Amnon. So a man who asked him why he was sick found out the cause. He helped Amnon plot a way for him to get what he wanted. Now, this was a very wicked plot, and so was the result. Amnon asked King David, he said, could my sister, my half-sister, could my sister Tamar, I'm sick, could she come and could she make a couple of cakes in my sight that I may eat from her hand? He's wanting her to come into his house, come into the chamber where he is, and knead the dough, and make bread, and cook it while he watches her, and then she's going to feed him. Guys, do you think he's ratcheting up the situation? Yeah, he is. David agreed, and Tamar came, and she waited on him, and she cooked for him, baked bread in his presence. They're nearly alone with her, watching her, lusting after her with increasing passion. He pretends that he's angry and sends all the servants away and says, Tamar, you stay with me and feed me. You're my sister. Once alone with her, he sees that his true motive, or it is seen that his true motive was obviously ungodly. And he grabs hold of Tamar and he forces himself upon her in an ungodly way. She pleads with him. She begs him, saying, please don't do this. You're going to be thought a fool in all of Israel. And, and this, is, this is not how to do this. If you want me to be your wife, just ask our father. He'll give you to me. Don't just do this evil thing. But it's a very sad story. It says he's much stronger than she is. And he rapes her. Now, I know we don't really deal with this a lot in church, but it happens in this thing, in this story in 2 Samuel. What a horrible thing. What happens here in, in verse 15 of 2 Samuel 13 is very indicative of what we do when we sin. Oftentimes the devil or our flesh will tell us, you want this, you want this, you want this. And then when you have it, you hate it. 2 Samuel 13. Then Amnon hated Tamar exceedingly, so that the hatred wherewith he hated her was greater than the love wherewith he had loved her. And Amnon said unto her, Arise and be gone. It's like we talked about the other day. When pleasure follows you, it's one thing. When you do good things and you live a good life and you're blessed and pleasure follows those things, it's one thing. But it's another when you follow it. When it leads you, you'll end up hating it. That's right. People drink alcohol and, and they like it. But then they drink more, and they drink more, and eventually they're following after the pleasure of alcohol so much so that they become miserable. When you say he's a, do you say he's a, uh, he's a joyful drunk? No, we say he's a miserable drunk. Why? Because the thing that he loves so much has become the thing that he has enslaved him and forced him to do things. And, and, and so in it, he realizes that his lust, his desire, his uh, that he has allowed to run rampant, that has made him ill. 
And now he's realized it's caused him to do a horrible thing. And now not only does he hate himself, he hates the woman that he has sinned against. This is what sin does. It promises you, oh, if you just have this, if you just do this, if you can just make this happen, then you're going to be happy. But it lies. The devil lies to us. She said to him, there's no cause for you to do this evil in sending me away. He's saying, hey, if you're going to take me and you're going to do this, just make me your wife and be done with it. That would be the right thing to do here. Sending me away is greater than the, what you have just done to me by forcing yourself on me. But he would not listen to her. He called his servant, said, put this woman out for me and bolt the door after her. And she wore a garment of different colors upon her. For such were the robes of the king's daughters that, and that were virgins were appareled. And the servant brought her out and bolted the door after her. And Tamar put ashes on her head and she ripped her pretty garments. And she went away crying. It's a sad story. But she had this big, beautiful, handsome brother Absalom. And he sees her. What is wrong? What is wrong? Has Amnon done something evil to you? And she says, yes. Now, boys, if you have a sister and someone ever does anything like that, you're going to want to kill him. And you should. Because what he did to her was evil. It was horrible. And Absin hated Amnon for this. You see, the deal was when this happened to a woman, she could never be married. No one would marry her. She's a princess, but she's what would be described. She's been spoiled. She's been ruined, and she cannot be with another man. And so if he didn't take her and receive her as his wife, she was going to live the rest of her life unmarried. This was a very, very horrible thing that he did to her. But Absalom, her brother, said, hold your peace. Don't tell everybody about it. Just come and live with me and forget about this thing and live at my house. Now, was this the right thing to do either? No. Forget about it, not talk about it. Absalom thought he could forget about it too. But do you think Absalom could forget about this? Especially since she's living in his house. Here she is day by day living in his house and... And he sees her walking back and forth. And every time he sees her, he's reminded, she's living in my house because of Amnon. And people knew it. People were talking. People heard about it. In fact, it tells us that in the Scriptures that David heard about it. And David was very angry when he heard about it. But this is the sad part. As far as we can see in Scripture, David did nothing about it. So Absalom did nothing about it. Thought he could handle just taking care of his daughter and hating his brother? Can you live and hate your brother and bad things not happen? You cannot. And David heard about it and he was angry and he began to despise his own son. But he did nothing about it. This story I'm telling you is a story to know the details of it is to look into the very dark glass of human nature and to see the ugliness of sin. No doubt, not doing anything about this is going to haunt David after all that transpires. Perhaps his own recent sin with Bathsheba stops him from acting. This is what sin often does to us. It renders us powerless in dealing with others who desperately need us. When you sin and then somebody else does, it's kind of hard to go to them and go, you shouldn't do that, right? And the devil knows this. It's like taking out two people at once. He gets you all caught up in a sin, Andy, and then when your boys get involved in it, you go, well, you know, I do the same thing. And so it's kind of hard to get passionate. There's people in the church as your pastor, and there's things that you're doing, and I'm like, but you know what? I do that too. It's hard for me to talk to you about it. The devil knows this. He knows if he can get you not, if he can get you to sin, that's great. And then if he can get you to carry around your guilt and not do anything about what you're supposed to do and help other people in their sin... He's really doing good, and that's what happens. David may have thought to himself, how can I deal with Amnon when I've done worse than him? I not only was with a woman that was another man's wife, not just a, a virgin, but I was with a, another man's wife, and then I had him killed. What am I supposed to say to Amnon? Everybody knows what I did. 
He may have thought, well, you know what? God says I am going to reap what I've sown, and well, now I'm, I'm reaping, so what can I do? He may have thought those kind of thoughts. It's what the devil will do. He will come to you with Scripture, Luke. He'll say, you sow what you reap. You reap what you sow, and so you're just reaping it, so just, just, just deal with it. It's all my fault. He was right. It was all of his fault. But what's amazing about Scripture is even when something is our fault, the blame still comes on the person that does it. Right? God hardened Pharaoh's heart, but who's going to be judged for what Pharaoh did? Pharaoh is. You may do something to sin against your wife or your husband or your children. You may, in your anger, you may get mad at them and, and, and they may act out and become like you. They probably will. They do it in my house when I do it. Oh, it's all my fault. I'm, for two years, David does nothing. Two years. Absalom grows bitter day by day after seeing the sad, ashen face of his beautiful sister Tamar ruined by Amnon, believing she will never marry and bear children. And so he plots to kill him. At a feast when all the sons of David are present, Absalom and his servants rise up against him. All the years of bitterness and hate, he thinks he's forbearing, he thinks he's covering, but inside this thing is like a cancer inside him, this hate, this unforgiveness, this evil. Because So what Amnon did was wrong, but now what Absalom is doing was wrong is too. Are we allowed to get angry with people two years after being bitter against them and kill them because we're mad at something they did two years ago? You absolutely may not. You're, never, you're not the judge. We have a judge. Amen? What does the Bible say? Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. You know, in the heat of the moment, there are things that happen. But this was not the heat of the moment. This was two years down the road. He's thinking about it. He's dwelling on it. The bitterness is growing inside of him. I know this is rough for a snow day, but it's what we got. They rise up and they kill him. David thinks, David gets news from a runner that all of his sons have been killed by Absalom. And he's just, oh! Another runner comes and says, no, 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 they're not all dead. Just, just Amnon. And he cries. It says he mourns and laments. What's he crying about? He knows why he's dead. He knows why Absalom, he knows Absalom has killed him. And he knows why Absalom has killed him. He's killed him because he, as a king, did not do what he should. Should have he allowed Tamar to be raped, to be treated this way and do nothing about it? And if, if Absalom is even half the man that any of us claim that, claim that we'd be, he's going to be thinking about it. He's going to be wanting justice to be done about it. But what he isn't doing is he's not talking to his dad. He's not bringing it to a judge. He's encouraging his sister not to talk about it. This is what the devil does. Shut your mouth. Don't talk about it. Deal with it. You can't. You've got to talk about it. You've got to deal with people. You've got to go to people. If you don't go to people when they sin, and when they sin against you, you will become bitter against them. Against them. So Absalom flees to the land of Geshur, to his grandfather's kingdom, and there he remains for three years. Again, David does nothing. Everybody say, David does nothing. David knows it's his fault. He sees what's going on. He sees then what Absalom does about what he didn't do about it. And now Absalom's gone. Now he's lost two sons. In the middle of all this, uh, it doesn't say exactly, but we believe Daniel's second-born son, whose name was Daniel, he dies as a young boy. Because now Absalom, who is the third-born of David, is now going to be the successor of the kingdom if something happens to David. So we have... Amnon, and we have Daniel, and we have Absalom, and we believe Daniel has passed away. Many children and babies died in that time. So David does nothing. Glad that his other sons were not killed by Absalom's men, David refuses to deal with Absalom. It seems to me in this very dark time for David, it gets darker by the day. He is paralyzed by his own failures, his lacks. He lacks the courage that he displayed against the giant of Gath insomuch that he turns from dealing with sin of yet another son. The Bible tells us that as the years went by, David's heart longed for Absalom. 
but we know he did nothing. God's word is, is amazing. It puts it, it says, and David longed for Absalom. So many people get bitter against people or they miss people or they regret things, but they don't do anything about it. They just sit at home and they long. That's what David, he's sitting at home. He's longing. It's been, it's been three years. His son's away. There are people that go their whole lives and sometimes they don't talk to a brother. They don't talk to a sister. That happens when you get grown up. You get so grown up and so mature that when your brother or sister upset you and offend you and make you mad, you just don't talk to them for three or four years. But it says David's heart longed for Absalom. How could he do anything about it? He had done so much worse. How could he blame him? Oh, the pain, the second guessing, the inward turmoil that must have accompanied this time in the days to come. David's head general Joab knows it. He sees David as sad and, and he's like, I'm going to do something about it. And Joab works out a way and he begs and pleads with the king. He says, can't I just send for Absalom? And David's like, okay, just send for him. But David now, when Absalom returns back to Jerusalem, he, he shuns him. He doesn't want to see him. You know, when we sin against people and we do wrong, you know, we don't, we want, to, we don't want to see him. Why? When we see him, they remind us of what? They remind us of what we did. This is, I'm telling you, this story is so filled with the pain of human nature and what happens in the lives of people. His son comes back to Jerusalem. You think it'd be, you think it'd be like the prodigal, right? You'd be standing on the doorstep. My son has come home. It's been three years. You know what? I should have done something about Tamar. I should have done something about Amnon. And, and you shouldn't have done what you did, but I understand it. I've done worse than you. I forgive you. I love you. You're my son. But you know what he does? He doesn't see him. Absalom comes, he's like, you know, it would have been better for me to live in my grandfather's kingdom. It's worse. Now I'm back in town and my dad won't even see me. And now Joab won't even return his phone calls. You know what he does? He sends and has Joab Barleyfield set on fire. Joab goes, what in the world? He's like, you wouldn't answer my, my, my emails? You wouldn't answer my text messages? You wouldn't answer my phone calls? And so I thought, if your Barleyfield was on fire, perhaps you might return my phone call. So he does, and, 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 and you know, nothing works out. They don't get together. Nothing good happens. This story just gets worse and worse. David doesn't see Absalom. He doesn't talk to him. He doesn't make things right. It's just a darker, deeper story of people who won't deal with things, who won't talk to people, who have bitterness in their heart. This is a rough time, and all of it is because of David. Can you imagine? David's getting darker and darker and deeper and further, right? So Absalom says, you know what? I'm going to live my life. And so he does. He starts having children. He has three sons. His three sons, though, die in young age. And he has a daughter. And he says, you know what? I think I'm going to name her Tamar. Do you think Absalom had gotten over the pain when he names his daughter Tamar after his sister that's living in his house, that's a constant reminder of the death of his brother, of the sin of his father, of his estrangement with his dad. His daughter's born and he names her Tamar. I mean, really? And you know what? He says, you know what? I'm going to be the next king anyway. And he starts going around the kingdom and people say, man, look at that good looking guy. He's living in Jerusalem and he is the son of the king. And you know, the king hardly ever comes out anymore. And when we see him, he's sad. And, and he's depressed and, he, and bad things are going on and he's kind of hiding out. But look, here's his son. He's walking around. He's going and, and, and there's, a, there's a problem happening in the, the world of the judiciary here. There's no judges to judge. And, and Absalom's going around, you know, if I were king, I would judge your case. You need someone to plead for you. And when people come and they bow down and just say, oh, Prince Absalom. He says, oh, get up and hug my neck. I like you. You're great. He starts politicking. And people start coming around him and they start liking him. And the scripture tells us that Absalom stole the hearts of all of Israel. David's in darkness and he's feeling guilty and he's not dealing with this sin. This is the worst, darkest time. This is even worse than he's running away from Saul. When he's running from Saul, he's least God's anointed him and he's doing right. He's running away from himself. It's a rough story, isn't it, guys? It doesn't get better. It gets worse. And so Absalom gets this guy by the name of Ohithophel. Everybody say Ohithophel. Ohithophel is the grandfather of Bathsheba. Remember me talking about him a couple weeks ago? 
And he turns away from David and he becomes Absalom's counselor. And he starts talking to Joab and trying to make friends with him. And he starts building this mutiny, this coup d'etat or whatever you want to call it, this rebellion where he's going to take the kingdom. And so that's what he does. David won't talk to him. Years and years go by. He's politicking. He's walking around. He's making friends. He's making promises. And all of Israel's like, you know what? We really like him. Where's David? And David's off doing what he shouldn't be doing. So Absalom hatches this plot. He said, send these people everywhere. And when the trumpet blows, everybody say, Absalom is king. And they do it. And David is like, what? And David gets all of this, and he's realized, wait a minute, we're in trouble. There's an army coming, and there's mercenaries from other countries, and it's, it's like this is a terrible situation. And so David, instead of doing anything about going to Absalom, what does he do? He runs. This is that chapter. So many bad things happen during this time. It gets lower and lower and lower. David had sunk so emotionally low, crushing him further, leaving an open door for the devil to work greater mischief. And the next two things that happen are, are even lower. It's like, you know, just when you think it's going to get bad, it gets worse. So he goes out. Did you guys hear from the reading? So this guy named Shimei, he's one of the relatives of Saul. He, he starts following Saul. As, as David is leaving Jerusalem, the relative of Saul starts following him and taking rocks and throwing at the king and throwing dirt on him. Now, this actually happened to me in my life. I, will, I used to fight a lot, Heath, in school. I used to get in fistfights and... and uh, that's not a good thing. And so I literally, I was at church, Andy, and I made like a promise to God. That's it. I'm not going to fight anymore, no matter what. And I made the mistake of sharing this pearl with a friend of mine at school. So he thought it was funny. And so he told the people at school, Mark's not going to fight anymore. So this kid who was this greasy-haired, freckle-faced, foul-mouthed kid that smoked out by the back... He, he thought it was funny. You know what he did? He got a handful of gravel. I'm serious. It's just like in the Bible. And he followed me and he goes, hey, Robin, man. And he took these rocks and he started hitting me in the head. I'm, I'm walking home from school and this kid is following me, hitting me in the head with rocks. I'm telling you, this actually happened to me. And I'm thinking, inside, I'm thinking, I want to kill him. I want to, I mean, the kid was this big. But old Mark, he's a Christian and he's promised God he's not going to fight anymore. And you know what? Normally I'd be afraid of him, but I, I think, you know, I'm going to throw a rock. And he's, trying, and he's hitting me in the head. He's hitting me in, the guy's name was Van Gundy, I think is what his name was. I forgot about that. <laughs> this guy named Shimei is doing it to David. And instead of killing him, David's like, you know what? I deserve it. God's probably sent him to do it. So if that wasn't bad enough, the guy named Zeba, he comes, and Zeba is who? Mephibosheth. You guys remember Mephibosheth? Mephibosheth is the, is the son of Jonathan, David's, you know, Saul's son, and David's good friend. And then he goes, oh yeah, he goes, uh, Mephibosheth, he's staying in town, and, you know, he and their family, they're just glad the kingdom is going to be restored back to the family of Saul. Can you imagine how low is it? The crippled kid you take into your house to care for, to take mercy, you bring him in and he abandons you in, the, in this time of trouble. David is feeling low. And that's when David writes Psalm 3. Kind of makes the psalm a little bit more meaningful, doesn't it? He's at the low of the low of the low. His friends have abandoned him. He has no security in the palace. He's carrying around the guilt of it. His son Absalom is trying to kill him. He's running for his life. And you know what David did? David did what David always does. This is what, this is what makes David a man after God's own heart. When, man, when David gets as low as he can go, you know what he does? He goes to the Lord. And he goes to the Lord in prayer and he says, God, help me out. The Bible says that David, if you guys remember what happened in Ziklag when all of his brother, all of his wives and his children were taken by the Amalekites and they were all feared dead. The Bible says, and David encouraged himself in the Lord, his God. And that's what he does. David learned 
what we need to constantly be reminded of. Yes, we're sinners. Yes, we deserve all the evil we reap, for we have surely sown it. Yes, it's all true, but that's not all that's true. It's true that we are His children, that we are called the sons of God, that we are promised a future that cannot be altered by our enemies or even our own failures. I love Romans 8 where it says nothing. Everybody say nothing. Nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of God. Not our own sins. Not our failures. Not our difficulties. Not the things that we don't do right. Amen? And so, we need to be reminded today that God is our shield, our glory, and the lifter of our heads. No matter how many enemies come against us, we are more than they. And so David writes these words. He said, Lord, how are they increased that trouble me? Many are they that rise against me. Many there be which say of my soul, there is no help for God in him. Not only is he saying there's no help, but the people are looking to him and say, God always helped him before, but God's not even going to help him now. And then he says these words, these words that I say them all the time. He says, but thou, O Lord, art a shield for me, the glory and the lifter of my head. I cried unto the Lord with my voice and he heard me. Guys, that's big stuff. The whole, everyone that doesn't serve God, who, you know, they serve these false gods, they cry to a Lord that can never hear them. He said, I cried unto the Lord, and he heard my voice, and he heard me out of his holy hill. In verse 5, he said, I laid, I laid me down to sleep. Could you imagine in this time, Jeff, sleeping? An army is after you. You displaced. You have to protect all of your children and your wives from these treacherous enemies that are ready to kill you at a moment's notice. And all this is going on. And so David goes to sleep. He writes about it. He literally writes about it. So what did I do? I laid me down to sleep and I awakened for the Lord sustained me. I love what he says in verse 6. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people. That have set themselves round about me. Arise, O Lord, and save me, O my God, for thou hast smitten all my enemies upon the cheek, and thou hast broken the teeth of the ungodly. Salvation belongeth unto the Lord, thy blessing is upon thy people. And we don't have time to go into all of it, and I'll conclude with what happened in our story. Of course, we know does God abandon David? Does God. Let his son kill him. And is that the end of David? Everybody say, no, that's not the end of the story. Ohithophel, his grandfather, his, his father-in-law, the, grand, the grandfather of Bathsheba, is disgraced. Absalom chooses another counselor, and Ohithophel goes and hangs himself. And here's what happened to Absalom. So the people went out into the field against Israel in the battle of the wood of Ephraim. And where the people of Israel were slain before the servants of David, and there was a great slaughter that day of 20,000 men. For the battle was scattered over the face of the country, and the wood devoured more people that day than the sword. And Absalom met the servants of David, and Absalom rode upon a mule. And the mule went under a thick bow of a great oak tree, and his head, his beautiful hair, was caught in the tree. And he hung. The, the mule just kept going. And there he is, hanging in the tree by his beautiful hair, Absalom. And men saw it and they told Joab and they said, Behold, Absalom is hanging in an oak tree. He's right there. We can just do whatever we want. And Joab said to the man, Behold, you saw him? Why did you not smite him right there to the ground? I would have given you ten shekels of silver and a girdle. And the man said to Joab, Though I should receive a thousand shekels of silver in my hand, I would not put forth my hand against the king's son. Because the king has said not to touch him. Otherwise, I should have wrought falsehood against my own life. But we know what happens. We know that Joab and the men of Joab kill Absalom. David comes back to Jerusalem and he talks to Mephibosheth and says, Why didn't you come? He says, Well, I'm a cripple and my servant misrepresented me. I, I never left you. All of the things that seemed they were one way in the end, what did God do? God restores David to Mephibosheth. He restores David to his kingdom. 
He restores David and protects him. Lord, how they increased against me that trouble me. Many are they that rise against me. Many are they that say there is no help for him in God. But thou, O Lord, art a shield for me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried unto the Lord with my voice, and he heard me out of his holy hill. I laid me down to sleep, and I awakened, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people that have set themselves round about me. Arise, O Lord, and save me, O my God, for thou hast smitten all mine enemies upon the cheekbone. Thou hast broken the teeth of the ungodly. Salvation belongeth to the Lord. Thy blessing is upon thy people. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, we are thankful today that salvation belongs to you. That our rest is in you. Lord, that we would not labor in vain building a house unless you built it, Lord. We know that we labor in vain. We can watch and we can try to protect our own, but unless you are watching us, Lord, there is no safety for us. Lord, we will raise our children and we will do our very best, but unless they are your children and you are keeping them, then we are watching them in vain. We pray today, Lord God, that our hearts would be lifted up, that we would be encouraged by Psalm 3, that we would be encouraged by David, that we would be admonished and we would not follow in his sins, but that we would follow him in his repentance. In Christ's name we pray and all the church said, Amen. Hello, this is Pastor Mark Robinette of Foundation Church. Thank you for taking the opportunity to listen to our audio sermons. We would love to hear from you if you have any comments, questions, or just to let us know how they served you. Go to our website, www.foundationfellowshipchurch.org, and send us a note. Thank you, and it's a pleasure to serve you.